what happens over the course of you know the mid '60s to late to early '70s? Um, why does he stop kind of doing these pieces? Why does he stop doing work that seems to focus on African American voices and material? I mean, there's a period there, right? And as you said, I call them the race pieces, where he's really kind of doing stuff specifically like that's really oriented very explicitly around African-American music, voices, culture, politics, etc. Even though it's not all coming from him, it's clearly a preoccupation. Welcome back to Sound Expertise. I'm your host, Will Robin, and this is a podcast where I talk to fellow music scholars about their research and why it matters. If you listened to last week's episode, you might be expecting an interview with ethnomusicologist Timothy Taylor about music and capitalism. This is not that, which we bump to next week. Instead, this is a bonus episode recorded just last Friday in response to a controversy that erupted in the music world recently around the composer Steve Reich. Reich is one of the most prestigious figures in American music today, a rare living composer who is both regularly studied by scholars and regularly performed by major institutions. Last week, an anecdote from the British photographer Val Wilmer, published in the 2019 anthology A Hidden Landscape Once a Week, resurfaced online, which I will read in full. This is Wilmer speaking. You know, the other day I heard somebody talking about Steve Reich on the radio. And I interviewed him once for Melody Maker, and I'd just come back from Ghana, and he'd been to Ghana too, the same place as a matter of fact, and heard the same music. I was talking about a person who was playing with him, who happened to be an African American who was a friend of mine. I can tell you this now because I feel I must. This was in Michael Nyman's house, and we were talking, and I mentioned this man, and Reich said, Oh yes, well of course, he's one of the only blacks you can talk to. So I said, Oh really? He said, this is Reich speaking, blacks are getting ridiculous in the States now. And I thought, this is a man who has just done this piece called drumming, which everybody cites as a great thing. He's gone and ripped off stuff he's heard in Ghana, and he's telling me that blacks are ridiculous in the States now. So this is clearly a racist comment, and social media erupted with understandable anger about Reich's words. For those familiar with the composer's broader history, the anecdote also resonated with Reich's long and possibly appropriative relationship with both African-American and African music, as well as his complicated politics, which have drifted rightward since the 1960s. And so, as a fan of Reich's music, which I also teach in my classes, and which I will admit I do not necessarily always subject to the full critical scrutiny it deserves— I wanted to talk to someone on the podcast about all of these issues. Sumanth Gopinath is an associate professor of music theory at the University of Minnesota, and for nearly two decades has been writing on the issue of race in Steve Reich's music, from his 2005 dissertation through several major publications that have really reshaped how we approach this topic. I've been reading Sumanth's work for years and have found it deeply enlightening. I hope that this discussion, which is our longest episode by far, does not by any means excuse Reich's racist comment, but contextualizes it within the composer's broader engagement with Afro-diasporic music and racial politics. I learned a lot from this conversation, and I hope you do as well. So scholarship on Steve Reich's music in the last kind of decade or so has really kind of, I've seen it kind of move from, it's kind of more traditional composer studies, studies of the the composer and their musical works to a more kind of engagement with some of the political themes in his music as well as kind of critique of some of those themes. Um, And your work, which I've been following since grad school has definitely been at the center of that um, since your 2005 dissertation on Reich and race. Can you talk a little bit about how you got to the subject of studying Steve Reich through the prism of race? Like what the field was like in terms of minimalism and Reich studies at that point and why this kind of intervention was needed? Yeah, this is a a great question. Um, So the way that this started for me was that in 
early grad school, I um, had started, as most grad students do in seminars, we're trying to kind of figure out a seminar paper and also thinking, you know, eventually towards what a dissertation project would look like. And um, I had been exposed to Steve Reich's music in as an undergrad and then um, in a more sustained way in grad school. And so sort of, I think Trevor Bacha, who's a composer, I don't know if you know him, he's a good friend, goes back to my days at UT Austin. Um, he was one person who was into Steve Reich and I, I think he showed me come out when I was an un, like an undergrad. Hmm. Um, and I don't think it registered with me at the time, but I was also an engineering student and not very politicized in any way. And then when I got to Yale, um, I encountered the piece again. And at that point, I had started becoming a union organizer. I was, you know, kind of coming to be aware of my own racial background as not white and as an Asian American, South Asian American, and thinking about race more seriously. I had encountered uh, Michael Veal, who's, uh, he was on my dissertation committee and it's a huge influence to me or on me. And, um, and among other things, uh, you know, talking with grad students about, uh, you know, race and union organizing and labor and politics and was getting into Marxism. All of these things were sort of happening roughly around the same time. And, and I would say the Reich thing was actually a little uh, sort of on the, on the early end of some of that. And um, I wrote a seminar paper on Reich and race for uh, uh, a course uh, taught by Robert Morgan. And, um, and it basically kind of mapped out, you know, that this trajectory that's showing that, you know, Reich's focus on African-Americans early on, and then his move to, you know, other issues, um, especially by the early seventies and it seemed like world music was kind of this focus. And, and then, you know, at some point, you know, this, uh, his Jewish identity became increasingly important. Right. So I was interested in that. And that's, you know, those are like well-known, you know, not secret or, sure. you know, dimensions of the story even then. But um, I think no one had, at least in my, what I encountered, no one seemed to be very critical or think historically about what that meant. And so, and because of my concerns about race and, um, and thinking about its relevance to music and certainly my own life and politics, um, in revisiting a piece like Come Out or Different Trains or um, music for team musicians, these issues started to become much more charged for me and come out, you know, which I'd been thinking about maybe the most, occupied a lot of energy uh, within that sort of study. And so, um, you know, and people who I would say in terms of the state of what people thought about it, and we have to remember too, a lot of, a lot of my interlocutors, not all of them, but most of them were white. And so, and there were a lot of people who were, um, you know, white composers, white theorists, you know, people who were interested in, in American, mostly white experimental music, you know? And so, you know, I would say the black voices I was encountering were people who were not interested in that. They weren't kind mm. of in that context, you know? Um, I didn't have a lot of connections to the experimental jazz or free music scenes like that. You know, that's developed more recent, you know, like since I really moved to Minnesota and stuff, but, um, so that was my orbit. And so people were, you know, like thought Steve Rice was great. And, you know, he was a hero right. to them. Right. Um, and I just didn't feel that way because of what made these developing concerns around this piece hmm. and about these pieces in general. And, um, and, you know, when I've revisited uh, Come Out at that moment in the late 90s, like the piece made me mad. And I was trying to kind of work through my feelings around it. Like, and it was actually over the course of doing that, over the course of the dissertation, and then comparing to all the laudatory, you know, articles and writings, like you said, like there was a lot of stuff that basically was sort of, you know, praiseworthy um, composer studies. Well, let's but, um, maybe jump to the, why did come out make you mad in the nineties? Like what, and, and, you know, what about that piece signals? I think for a certain group of people, it can signal like this is uh, a important kind of um, uh, work of electronic music that is influential. And like, you can unpack all of that. Then there's a kind of other set of people who valorize it as some kind of document of civil rights, but then there's the more kind of critical take. So what, what about come out? What is, I mean, maybe tell us from your, 
perspective, like what has come out, what is the piece about, and then like, why did you feel negatively towards it? Sure. So to, to tell the famous story, I mean, we know the history of uh, the Harlem Six case, or it's familiar now because more people have written about it. Um, and one of the members of that group of young African-American men who were um, basically like, you know, rounded up for a crime they didn't commit um, by police due to an earlier event in which they were sort of tagged uh, called the Little Fruit Stand Riots um, in Harlem. And during the sort of upheavals around the so-called Harlem riots, the uprisings of 1964, um, this was sort of part of that moment in which cops were sort of looking for, it actually happened a little before, if I remember correctly, um, if the dates are fuzzy in my mind now, but, um, but around that time, um, they found uh, uh, these young men and basically, um, you know, uh, put them, put them in jail and then, you know, started beating them and interrogating them. And it's horrible, right? I mean, it's the kinds of things that cops have done to, uh, to black people and black men in particular for a long time. Um, and so that was the sort of story in context. And as we know, Ham um, was interviewed for testimony about what happened to him for a book that was uh, called The Torture of Mothers written by Truman Nelson, who was a kind of uh, leftist uh, uh, writer, fiction writer, historical fiction writer. Anyway, and then as part of that, um, recorded testimony, Ham was recorded like so many of the other uh, members of the group and described that what he did in order to basically get out of being beaten, like cops do, they have techniques where they beat you up and can, you know, essentially like really do terrible damage, but it doesn't leave, you know, many sort of visible wounds or, or signs of what they've done to you. And so um, he had a bruise and, he, you know, he says, I had to like open the bruise up and let some of the bruise blood come out to show them. And in doing that, opening up the bruise blood, he, um, he showed visible injury and then was able to kind of basically get out, um, get out of being held or, and it was transferred to a hospital, I believe. And so this, this was a, um, Reich, when he was talking to Truman Nelson said, um, you know, I guess they were at some party and Nelson, um, said, uh, you know, I, I'm looking for someone to make a kind of audio collage of this testimony so that we can, you know, play it at this benefit. And, um, and John Pym, who's, who's done a lot of research on this, um, actually writes about this collage piece in, um, in Rethinking uh, Reich, the book right. that, I did that came out last year. And, um, and he's done a lot of work on this subject too. So he's sort of uncovered a lot more, particularly by um, really digging into the archival stuff at the Zucker. Um, Anyway, um, and so this um, this moment, um, you know, when Reich meets Nelson, uh, Nelson's asking him to do this thing. You know, Reich has just moved to New York. I mean, he had been in the Bay Area for a while, and then he's come back. And um, I think he came back in the fall of '65, and I think he meets um, Nelson sometime between then and like early '66, and. Um, Nelson said, he says to Nelson, sure, I'm willing to do it. And he's going to do it for free. I mean, you know, there's no money involved. Sure. And he says, I'll do it. But, you know, my payment or what I want in exchange is that if I find something in it that I can turn into a piece, I want to use it. And Nelson's like, a piece? You know, of course, like, who knows? This is the little world of electroacoustic music. What does that even mean to most people, right? And then he shows him, um, I, I don't know, he must have done it later, but he showed him it's going to rain. And Nelson loved it. And, he, and Rice starts working on the piece. You know, he's listening as his, you know, he's written about much later and more extensively, he's listening to speech for its pitch content and rhythm content, right? Like sort of hearing like, what are these capacities? And he's not necessarily or only paying attention to the words. Of course, they intersect in all these complex ways as word and pitch sound do in song and in other musical contexts. And so ex excerpted and turned into music, um, he takes that sentence and then in the piece, as we all know, that excerpts it again to just come out to show them, you know, and then that becomes the unit, which, you know, can be transcribed in a variety of ways. I took one approach to it in my, in my dissertation and that essay from Sound Commitments. And then, um, and then over the course of the piece, it transforms, right? Like, so he uses his famous phasing process where he takes two copies of the same, um, you know, musical 
example, in this case, a, a pre-recorded one, and allows them by, you know, slightly altering the speed of the tape loop of one, he said, by putting his thumb on the reel to slow it down, it slightly goes in, you know, out of sync. And as it goes out of sync, you know, all these notes, which have a relatively steady rhythm, start to line up in different ways. And so it's the, it's the lining up in part that sort of makes the shift sound not just like moving from, you know, like steadiness to kind of unsteadiness, but then lining back up into these new patterns. The piece, the way it goes, it unfolds is that it then multiplies. So it, you know, there are a variety of ways that he uses the phasing process. One is that he, you know, lets something run its course, that it goes in sync, it's in sync, and then it runs through a bunch of positions until it finally wraps back around and it's in sync again to the original. Another is to just go to a few steps, right? And so he does that with this. And then at a couple steps out, he then doubles what he has there and then lets the double thing move again and he does it one more time. And so it's the doubling and the, um, and the phasing process um, that changes the sound character of the, of the speech excerpt quite a bit. Because when you start, you're hearing you know, a text speech, it's of course reiterated and it's sort of you know, rhythmically hypnotic, it's you know, pitched, it has this C minor, B minor kind of you know, sound. It's, um, uh, you, know, you can turn it into something that you know, is you know, one conceivably could trance out to. And yeah. it's that multiplication and the change of what happens from the original voice to what it ends up with, which is this kind of soup and sonic com complex mess that I try to interpret in my own work. I read it, and oh, there are lots of ways to read it, but you know, right. people have read it in terms of being sounding like you know various forms of traditional or neo-traditional African musics. The sh, um, and I should say to step back that the what happens as a result of the multiplication and phase process is that the phonemes and sort of sonic content of the original excerpt gets divided up. And so different elements start to become separated. Different register layers get separated. Different phonemes get separated. So it's this whole thing where it like divides up and complicates in this way that just didn't it didn't before. And one of the things that you hear is by the end you're hearing this shh 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 shh, the kind of maraca sound, the maracas yeah. thing, right? So one people like in the '60s, some people read it as maracas or as shaker shaker, a kind of African uh, rattle, you know, instruments. Um, I heard it. That's one definitely way to hear it. One can hear it as breathing um, of some kind. I also, uh, a friend of mine who was listening to it with me, a musical collaborator, Emily Lechner, described it as sounding like sawing through metal or rattling on a, a chain link fence. I think that there was a metallic quality to it, which I think her observation is really astute. And that that sort of, there are all these things that, you know, suggest various things, basically. And so, yeah. but in the process of why I was mad, I think... I didn't have all these readings yet. I just heard this voice and I heard it go through all these things and it sounded violent to me. And I felt that, wow, he used this voice of an African-American speaker. You know, did he have permission to do this? Did he pay that person? You know, did, these were the kinds of questions in my mind. And I basically, I didn't have answers to those things. I didn't interview Reich or try to find out. I was scouring interviews that existed to try to get information. And then, um, you know, kind of through that process, ended up kind of starting to develop a reading that really took years. It, it, that reading itself was very influenced by suggestions from Michael Veal. It was, I talked to people, a lot of people about the piece. I was curious to what, hear what they thought. And so I would kind of play excerpts for them and see what they thought. I spent a lot of time transcribing this and it's gonna rain. And, you know, so there was a, a kind of whole, I don't know, steeping myself in Reich's work to kind of move from, I think this like sort of initial, I wouldn't say just upset, but it was upset, but discomfort. I was also attracted to and interested in the piece. I mean, I think the piece is powerful. And so um, it was that mix of feelings, I think, that then propelled the energy to to then try to better understand it as right. well as the way yeah. I Yeah. I mean, the, the, the kind of, I think, somewhat familiar critique, which is one that is frequently made and, and one that I kind of, when I teach the piece, talk a little bit about is that it takes a specific African-American voice and kind of abstracts it into noise so you have something that's very pinpointed and it, by the end of it it becomes this wash of sound in partly this piece is remembered historically for documenting some kind of reich participating in a political action some kind of solidarity with the civil rights movement but at the same time it's more often documented as like 
this is an important piece of electronic music that doc that represents one of his early phasing experiments right so like do you still feel agree with that kind of political critique of this piece did your kind of years of thinking about it and stewing with it come come to another realization yeah, I, I mean, one of them was I, I felt like I wanted to deepen the criticism beyond those versions of it. Um, like Chip Whitesell wrote an essay on the kind of noise version that, you know, that was, a, which I think is a, a part of the story for sure. You know, I think that, I, I, I think what's tr- tough is that, you know, the piece is all of these things, right? Um, I sort of connected to the transformation of text and thinking about, you know, sort of post-structuralist thinking, uh, which was con- contemporaneous with this moment, this piece. Um, so Derrida's work, deconstruction is a wor- way that people familiarly will say, like, Rice deconstructs this voice. And so, you know, what does that mean? The fact that it, that it arises at the same time as deconstruction, the way that people are thinking about text and language and meaning are, you know, part of a kind of intellectual moment and philosophical, you know, transformation that in that period, um, which is in part a kind of critique of the media and of the state and of like power and the way that language, you know, sort of shapes and controls things, you know, so there are all sorts of ways into it like that. There are um, um, yet other, other readings too, right? I mean, I think the big thing that I tried really hard to do is to say that as it moves to noise, or noisy stuff, that noise isn't meaningless. I think that's one of the things that I think is maybe my big intervention in that scholarship. So I really wanted people to try to figure out ways to understand the meaning of the piece, even though it has multiple meanings, because I think that it doesn't have infinite meanings and it doesn't become just meaningless as it, as it progresses. Mm. And that, that was the sort of really, I wanted to, you really like enrich the hermeneutics of this kind of stuff. And so you, um, I mean, you analyze, you, you talk about a kind of series of, of race works, I think is the phrase you use, in the 60s that Reich is creating. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about kind of what Reich's political positioning is in this time, especially with regards to come out, but also Odem Watermelons, which you've written a lot about, which is this very strange bit of marginalia, this exper- music created for an experimental film that was part of a leftist kind of political agitprop blackface minstrelsy show that both critiques blackface minstrelsy, but also plays into the tropes, you know, very problematic today, but you've spent a lot of time thinking about this. So tell us a little bit about Odem Watermelons and also Reich's larger kind of political project at the moment, mid sixties, shifting from the Bay Area to New York. Um, Sure. So in the Bay Area, after, you know, he had gone to Mills in Oakland and then you know, graduated and was staying, living there and got connected to um, the composers in the San Francisco Tate Music Center, um, you know, Ramon Sender, Terry Riley, Pauline Oliveros. I mean, there's a whole scene of people, right? And around the same time, and I, I think maybe through context in the Tate Music Center, I actually don't remember, um, he meets up with and connects up with Ronnie Davis, who's the head of the San Francisco meme troupe. And it's the, or mime troupe, they have called it different ways over the years. Um, and Davis is, I would say, the most political, you know, kind of figure in terms of like really having a kind of, I don't know, a, a strong and coherent political worldview that was influencing Reich, I think. I mean, Reich was someone who was, I think, at the time, a sympathetic, you know, white liberal, um, Jewish American, white liberal, you know, um, pro civil rights movement, but not really thinking, I don't think he's not a, and I don't, still to this day, I don't think he's really a political thinker. I don't think he has like a, a, a really rich, complex kind of politics. I think he has a lot of instinctive politics and he, you know, he certainly thinks about things, I'm sure. And, you know, and I've avoided talking to him for these reasons, because when people have tried to approach him about some of these things, he tends to shut down or his, his interactions yeah. about them have not been necessarily productive. So um, at least in recent years. So I, it just seems like it hasn't been worth it to kind of engage him. Um, maybe that's my mistake, but um, in any case, so that's my take on him. He was someone who was really trying to like make a career for himself and figure out where he was going. He's, he's an intense person, um, quick, quick temper. A lot of people talk about at the time, um, you know, trying to move places. Um, Saul Landau, who was the writer of, of Minstrel Show, the piece, um, the San Francisco Mean True piece, um, 
you know, was one of the people who was aware of Reich at the time and also much more politically, you know, kind of very leftist and doing eventually like made like leftist documentary films dealing with Cuba and all sorts of stuff. Um, Davis himself was very Marxist. Um, and so they were thinking through a lot of issues, uh, you know, politically, very explicitly through the meme troops work. And so when Reich encounters the, this stuff, they are looking for from him a kind of neo-Brechtian, uh, you know, sort of theater music um, in various contexts. And he worked for uh, on a, a, more than one piece for them. I mean, there are a few different ones that he did stuff for that music doesn't survive, but um, but it's fascinating, you know, stuff that would like pieces where he was like people were playing kazoos and um, you know uh, you know almost like neo cabaret kind of stuff. Um, anyway, so as part of this, the a minstrel show was I think the last one he did. And it was the most involved one. And the way that the, yeah, the way, as you described it, the way that the thing works is that there's a film, which is an interlude in, within the broader performance. And yes, the performance involves um, blackface. They, the performers um, put blackface on. It's both wow. black and white performers who are in blackface. Um, it's a confrontational blackface. Um, so, you know, it's, um, there. there are, you know, sort of, jokes that come out of historical minstrel show texts. And then it, um, there will be like transformations into kind of like um, black power, proto black power at the time, like black liberation and, you know, other sorts of radicalizing references. And it's all sort of mixed up in this sort of very quick paced uh, jumble. Um, it's fascinating. Yeah, today, I mean, you know, people wouldn't do it, but, um, and it se seems incredibly offensive. Um, it's not unlike something like Bamboozled, you know, that Spike Lee's film, uh, which also dealt with, you know, blackface and black caricature in various ways um, a lot later. Um, and, you know, uh, black artists at the time um, were interested in and supportive of this. Um, it's a, it's, it's, it's complicated story, yeah. but you know, the, yeah. the moral horizon, I think is how yeah. we think about it. But Reich's, yeah. how did Reich view that like all, all of how did he kind of take that in how did he make this kind of phasing thing thing and, and what did it involve so he i would say he um because he was trying to kind of figure out like a different way forward for his own work um this group gave him like a kind of a different i don't know a, approach to music making that i think um encouraged him to to think differently about what he was doing. And the other thing we have to remember is that he concurrently with all of this, he was doing these sort of tape music experiments in his own, you know, in, with his own equipment. He had been very influenced by meeting Terry Riley and Terry Riley showed him his tape pieces and then Reich like picked up on elements of them. Um, this is something that exists in the literature, but people don't adequately appreciate, I think, how much Terry Riley gave to Steve Reich. Um, Riley, uh, Reich then, picked up the phasing idea in part from what he was hearing and from, you know, studying and reading about African music. Um, yeah. I want to come back to that in more detail. So that's another key ahead. element. Yes. Yeah. We're um, going to talk about that more. Okay. And then um, as a result of that, as a result of this sort of like leftist political context um, and then the particular project where he was supposed to, he was working with a filmmaker who was going to make a documentary film of a Pentecostal, uh, a black Pentecostal street preacher named brother Walter. He records, Walter's voice and then turns it into this phase piece. And initially, as Martin Scherzinger uh, and others have talked about, he tried to kind of create a phasing rhythm and pattern that was where the voices were out of sync, um, inspired by the things he was reading about in A.M. Jones's book um, on African uh, studies and African music. And in doing so, um, then as he saw it like lining happening, uh, while working with it, he's, he then let it sort of go and it was starting to slip out of phase. And it was when it was moving out of phase that he realized, oh, this is a, this is the thing that's interesting. It's not just the, the patterns are interesting too, but it's like letting them move in and out of sync with one another. And so it was a kind of technologically shaped or motivated discovery. Yeah, Reich has the same famous quote where he talks about like, as, as it started to kind of, when we started in sync and then they move out of sync, like he felt it like move, you know, down through his body, his yeah. body and then like another side. Yeah. So it's a really evocative description. Um, and that, that sort of moment, I think, um, is a huge discovery and he's not sure what to do with it. 
Um, so when he does the music for the meme troupe, um, the film that's an interlude in the show, um, which deals with, uh, was made by Robert Nelson, um, experimental filmmaker and um, film basically features members of the troupe um, kind of doing stuff to watermelons and the watermelon becomes like symbolic of, you know, essentially it's like a symbol of an African-American. Um, mm. And so the violence that they're doing to it, which is like sort of this weird jesting violence. It's also like disgusting and grotesque and physical and sexual yeah. all the stuff that they're doing in that film, which is a weird film um, and fascinating, frankly. Um, it connects to then what they're doing, what, what they were doing at the show more broadly. Um, and then Reich's music was to take um, a, um, fragment of a minstrel song that he was he was using two minstrel songs in the at to, as the basis for the music of the of the film and the second song which is oh dem watermelons by luke schoolcraft he ends up um taking the little uh fragments that they sort of create a version or variant of the tune and at the very end there's a kind of cadence and then as part of that cadence, it starts being looped over and over again, like it sounds like a kind of two five cadence. And um, you're um, watermelon, 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 watermelon. And then he builds a cannon based on this. And it actually, even though it's marginalia, it's the first thing that really sounds a lot like Steve Reich's instrumental music. It's yeah, I was listening kind of, to it yesterday. Yeah, yeah it's, it's different. It's a rougher. It doesn't have the smooth voices because it's sung by members of the troupe and Reich himself. You know, he's playing the piano, but it's, it's, it's sort of Steve Reich music in, you know, about as close as you get until you get to like piano phase and then violin phase and, you know, the sort sure. of rest of the stuff that we know. And so it's pretty key. So David Chapman um, has written about the way that improvisations Right. Yes, yes, on, yes. You know, a version of the watermelon music, which they would do these kind of variations, the improvisations on a watermelon to variations on a watermelon. There were different versions of it. And he came to understand a certain kind of, you know, suspended dominant sound as a kind of, he, they would, he would joke about it in his, you know, in his notebooks as calling out the watermelon. So the watermelon became a chord, mm. um, you know, which is like a jazz chord, a jazz-ish, you know, I mean, I don't know, you don't have to hear it that way, but um, Ian Quinn talked about this in a paper that um, he gave when he's trying to think through Rice's harmony. Um, so anyway, this, all of this stuff ends up kind of um, brewing together and really playing into by the time when he gets to New York and starts to kind of figure out, you know, what he's going to do with, instrumental music as he writes about he didn't want to keep making tape pieces and it's clear that come out was a kind of second run of of it's going to rain you know he and it came out of this situation i don't think he would have necessarily done another tape piece like that um but he was he was struggling you know and obviously i don't know the ins and outs of what he was thinking at that time um and what he was working through but um but uh, um trying to get back to oh the the watermelons thing and so anyway to step back, I would say that the political thinking and context was, I think, really supplied a lot by Davis and, you know, the troupe and the context in which he was working. And as part of that, he became connected to a, a leftist, you know, largely white, but, you know, there were interracial collaborators with the Mime Troupe, um, white new left kind of radical Marxist group and with a lot of artists, you know, like sort of leftist Marxist arts group. And so that's the politics like that I think is sort of shaping what he's trying to do when he leaves that group and moves to New York. Um, I think he, you know, finds new friends and connects with old ones. And, um, and we have to remember that uh, as I've talked to Russell Hartenberger and others of the period, you know, the, the period was in general, very politicized. People were attending a lot of protests very, very regularly. It was sort of part of the world that they were in. Um, so I would say this is the kind of political world. It's yeah. it's not that it's not that Reich has I think a specific kind of theory or mm. thinking about politics that's like you know what's the right strategy for this or this you know uh, you know does he identify as a Marxist but he's on the left right I would yeah. say at that time he's on the left at so, that time yeah at that time yeah mm -hmm. and, you know and so what's important then I think is and this gets maybe to the question of like, you know, the issues that are coming up now. Yeah. Um, what happens over the course of, you know, the mid sixties to late to early seventies? Um, why does he stop kind of doing these pieces? Why does he stop doing work that seems to focus on 
African-American voices and material. I mean, there's a period there, right? And as you said, I call them the race pieces where he's really kind of doing stuff specifically like that's really oriented very explicitly around African-American music, voices, culture, politics, et cetera, even though it's not all coming from him, it's clearly a preoccupation. Um, and it's not unique, right? A lot of uh, white Americans and certainly a lot of Jewish Americans have been very interested in and kind of engaged with um, African-American musical practices and African-American musical life and culture and, and African-American lang language, you know, more broadly. So these are things that, you know, we can think of the Tin Pan Alley tradition and the Gershwins for among many others, right? Sure. And so, so Reich, I think you can, you can sort of see him in that vein. Anyway, all of which is to say that as um, in this later period, this is the period of when the black liberation movement is gravitating much more directly around ideas of black power, autonomous organizing. It's the moment when the Black Panther Party forms, you know, the Carmichael is shouting black power, um, you know, there, Amiri Baraka, you know, Leroy Jones is getting very politicized and speaking explicitly as part of his uh, black arts, um, you know, movement kind of work. So, and New so New York is a real center and and uh, of a lot of this uh, thinking and really like a kind of reclamation, I would say, of black work, which you know prior to that moment had been seen as you know in part like with Reich, even though I don't know if he would admit it or talk about it this way, but they were kind of source material for other people, you know? And mm. so, so this, I would say that my sense well before the current sort of scandal is that Reich was very aware of this and was at some level wary of trying to kind of continue in the vein of just using African-American themes as part of his work. Um, what he ends up doing is focusing more squarely on Africa. And right. there's, a docu there's a documentary uh, TV series um, on Africa on ABC, I think. And that is a huge influence for him. It ends up becoming the basis for slow motion sound, which is um, uh, like, I think the last of his race pieces, but it's an important, uh, it was never finished. And it, you know, there's a, a kind of fragmentary version of it that exists in the Zucker. But, um, but the idea of that, I think sort of, closes the window on his race voice, you know, sort of pieces and moves towards Africa. And it's all within like a span of like three years. It's a short wow. period. Um, and well, as he's doing that, he's also coming up with piano phase and all this instrumental right. music, which one can sort of see as kind of bleached out or whiter uh, because it's like sort of the politics seems absent. And so my sense is in that period, and he talks, uh, that series in particular made him also start thinking about, well, what's my background? Like, what do I have claims over? And he starts moving you know, especially in the 70s towards like reclaiming his Jewish identity as something he could draw on that wouldn't be an act of appropriation in the same way. Mm. So I think his sensitivity around this stuff, even though, you know, however he talks about it and however, you know, he's sort of thinking about these things, I think he's aware that what he's doing isn't quite okay. And that's one of the things that we know Reich is so preoccupied with in his writings, trying to set sort of demarcate limits as to what is and isn't acceptable or ethical. Um, it's something that he, you know, that's the point of my um, sound structure essay on drumming, the first thing I ever published on Steve Reich, and the first thing I ever published actually. And that idea, what's at stake in it is that, you know, it's okay to engage with structure, but not okay to engage with sound. Because if you imitate the sound of some music, that is to say, take its instruments, its pitch content, its, you know, timbres, you know, that's an appropriation. He calls it Shin Mazari. Um, but if you take the structure that, which for him was the rhythmic structure, it taught you to think in a different way. Um, and the point of my essay was that you can't really separate those things that, you know, right. once, right, you, right, right. once you put them to, you know, the sound and the structure are really intimately tied up. And so, um, so people often sort of think about drumming and I did the same thing as the piece that really sort of shows this stuff. But of course it was in the tape pieces because the tape pieces argument and idea was oriented around African music and um, Martin Schertzinger makes this argument. Um, and then this is, and so it's really a kind of thread that carries through a lot of his work. And so I would say that idea of kind of demarcating what is and isn't okay, making those ethical boundaries is part of a larger quandary or uh, uh, maybe a, a conception to kind of figure out what, what is and isn't, you know, possible or illicit for him to do. And that's motivating, I think, 
the changes that are taking place yeah. in that period. Now, what we didn't know, so the now the to go to the current situation when uh, the quote from Val Wilmer, is it? Val um, Wilmer, right. So, yeah. so Reich in the early 70s says, is reported to have said, blacks are getting ridiculous in the States now. That's the quote. Right. And so, you know, it's, it's, you know, a racist comment and all that stuff. Right. But like, it's, it's also, if you just try to kind of understand the context for it, I think, you know, there's a, a kind of anger and resentment at the fact that, you know, it's harder to talk to and, and engage across interracial lines. Cause part of the larger comment that Wilmer talks about is they were talking about a mutual African-American friend. And he says, and he says something like he's one of the blacks you can talk to. Um, and so the, like part of this story is I was sort of thinking about it is that there's a kind of, there's a commons uh, of what, you know, interpersonal exchange and intercultural exchange when people across different cultural uh, lines and backgrounds communicate and share ideas. And we take for granted in many contexts that it's okay to share those ideas and that we learn from each other and we can, you know, and, you know, through that exchange, you know, human beings do different and new and hopefully better or meaningful, continue to do meaningful things. Um, of course, at that period, a new awareness of a lot of these issues around asymmetries of those exchange, the fact that a black speaker and a white speaker just aren't, aren't especially then, certainly today, um, are, are never quite on the same speaking terms because of the politics of what it means to be white versus what it means to be black in the United States. You know, at the time, what it meant for an ambitious, you know, you know, fast talking white uh, composer um, to, and, and Jewish, and we have to remember that there were um, increasing conflicts uh, between um, Jewish Americans and black Americans in this period. That's part of the story too. Um, there are, there, it's not surprising to imagine that there are resentments and awarenesses of these kinds of appropriations that really hadn't existed before or people, I'm, I'm guessing that black speakers were aware of them, but just didn't voice those concerns, mm. right? you know, unwillingness to do so. And so that's the, I think it's that kind of context in which you so, have to place those yeah. comments. So like Reich is most likely someone is calling out Reich and like, we don't, we don't know that, but like he's probably getting kind of inundated with the kinds of critiques that are now being voiced, I guess, on, on Twitter. Right. Yes. And he's shutting down. I mean, he's certainly moving in a political direction, starting to drift rightward. Right. So, and that's not to excuse any of this, right? Um, let's talk a little bit about Africa and this kind of question of, of cultural appropriation. So, you know, Reich, the two kind of, I guess, main kind of black musical influences on Reich in the 60s are, he talks a lot about John Coltrane and modal jazz, and he talks a lot about reading A.M. Jones, who's this missionary musicologist writing right. on sub-Saharan West African music. So. What did Reich kind of take from, I don't know if we want to use the word take, if we want to use the word appropriate, be influenced by, uh, I'm, I'm curious to see how you'll approach this, from African music that informed those phasing experiments that informed kind of like really the, the nitty gritty, the, the, like the meat of his musical language from the time he becomes who he is. Yeah. I mean, I have my own take on it, but I'm no expert on African music. So, you know, I, I can give you what I think I sure, know. Please, yeah. Um, but um, um, I think it is worth talking to Africanists who have a better sense of it. But but my sense is that uh, Reich took a certain kind of reading of African music from Africa, from Jones, from he was reading Gunther Schiller's like early jazz and trying to kind of figure out um, you know the sort of roots of of African American music in part by by exploring this. Um, and I would say there are a variety of things. One is, you know, sort of repeated groove patterns, which of course he isn't just taking from African music. He's also interested in from, you know, jazz, as you said, he's influenced by Coltrane, you know, obviously like jazz features repeated groove patterns, not, not exclusively, but that's, you know, one element of the swing and, you know, sort of, you know, rhythmic patterns and soul jazz and other sorts of the various versions of uh, sort of lineages of uh, jazz that emerging in that period are certainly engaging to various degrees with grooves. Um, and then of course the rock pop, you know, lineage. I mean, he was listening to Bob Dylan and was listening to uh, Junior Walker's Shotgun, which is, you know, among other pieces like, you know, 
things that he cites that are influencing him. So he's, he's listening to a bunch of different repetitive groove-based mu musics. Um, and then he encounters Terry Riley and is, you know, here's what Riley is doing with repetitive grooves and units. And that's a huge influence, even though he doesn't tend to kind of talk a lot about the tape pieces that I think played a huge role. If you listen to She Moves She, which is one of um, Riley's uh, pieces for the music from The Gift, a play that he uh, did music for, um, it's, you know, moments sound a lot like Come Out and It's Gonna Rain. Um, but, but he does acknowledge more um, the importance of in C. Um, and so the influence of um, uh, in C, which he was involved in the premier performance of, um, he says uh, it needs a beat. And so the right, C's right, right. were born of probably some piece of Reich's own suggestions. Jeannie Brechen, who was Reich's girlfriend at the time, plays the high C's. Um, and as part of that sort of process, you know, he's electrified by this piece. I mean, it's a really important piece and, you know, it's sort of white experimental American music, right? And so it ends up being this um, one of a, a variety of influences that are encouraging to make groove-based music, right? Which is not typical in experimental music at the time. Sure. I mean, it's, and so as we know this and in sort of facing this, I would say that's one thing he gets from African music. Another thing he gets from African music is, um, the non-coincidental, you know, uh, organizing of, you know, uh, sort of different layers. And this is something that really he sort of sees by the way that Jones himself does transcriptions of African music. And this is something that not all scholars of African music agree on. And in fact, most of them, or at least many of them, do hear a kind of consistent meter and pattern that's shaped um, by the dancing as much as by, um, you know, the, what is actually sort of performed in, on the drumming and in musical instruments and singing. And this is something that um, Kofi Agawu has emphasized a lot. Um, David Locke talks about this too. And so there, there are scholars who really kind of emphasize the way in which, um, you know, Reich's music, um, or not Reich's music, but, um, you know, there are certain versions of an idea of African music that are, exist in scholarship that maybe aren't super accurate. But I think those versions of it encourage Reich to think about phasing, to mm. hear things and think about music in and out of phase. There are other things too that Reich was influenced by, the sort of relationship between like musical sound and language or like instruments becoming imitated by voices. I mean, um, you know, there are those sorts of like sonic practices and, uh, and uh, Scherzinger talks about some of those things too. And in fact, has a really great and like really rich and lengthy study of, um, Reich is sort of thinking about African music in Rethinking Reich. And so, um, which I think follows up on the earlier essay, yeah. on It's Gonna Rain and stuff that people maybe know better. But there's, um, a, there's a phrase that Reich uses, which I'm surprised actually hasn't kind of cropped up in, in, on social media, which is, the, I guess, a joke. But he says in an interview, he describes phasing as, uh, this is a quote, little mechanized Africans. Yes. And like that seems to gesture towards, I mean, I don't know. Like, what do you make of that? That 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 seems to me to point towards something in the come out thing too of like the interest in this music abstracted from the humans who create it, or like the kind of a dehumanizing aspect that that I think fuels a lot of you know historically white interest in non-Western music. Like, take the music without the people being attached to it. Right. I mean, and you know, it's him kind of making a joke, combining the very fact of like the, the mechanization of tape loops and repetition with the fact that the musical patterns are African, right? I mean, but so, I mean, you've sort of laid it all out, I think, in terms of how one can think about it. Um, you know, again, like these are sort of like, you know, jokes in these moments that seem symptomatic of, you know, broader kinds of um, thinking. Um, but it's, um, yeah, uh, Scherzinger himself, I think, in, in the earlier essay, like talks about the little mechanized Africans, as as do I, I think, in one in my yeah. dissertation or somewhere. But um, yeah, it's an it's it's indicative, I would say. I'm you know it. Um, there are lots of ways to think about it too, in terms of the ways in which you know repetitive patterns um, in black uh, Afro diasporic you know sort of musical traditions were then read by modernists in terms of mechanization and machines mm. and modernity. And so the a kind of Afro-modernity ideal 
is has a lineage too, you know, and right. so I would say that there's he's he's again picking up on something that isn't doesn't start with him. Um, right. No, no, no. Let's let's talk a little bit about drumming. Um, you know, this is the moment in which Reich's interest in African music is is mediated through his study of someone else's study, and then he goes to Ghana and studies with a master drummer and learns Awe music. Why does he do that? What is the interest? What does he come out of that experience learning and how does that shape the creation of like one of these pieces that is talked about as being this kind of fusion of African and European music, whether or not you kind of buy that? Yeah. Um, I mean, that was uh, something that I was trying to kind of think through in the, my own piece on drumming. And I, I, it's, it's an important story because I think it's clear that as Reich is working with these phase pieces and he's been reading about African music, he doesn't really know it very well. Um, he's sort of got certain structural ideas that he's pulled out of the Jones and of other things he's reading. Um, Scherzinger noted, emphasizes that he starts getting in, in touch with the Tracys and you know is is paying attention to archives and like you know so he's pulling you know in the mid to late seventies he's really starting to try to educate himself more about this music because it's clear that this music is something that's um, it's generative for him to engage with. And so, um, uh, and or appropriate, whatever you want to say, right? I mean, the U.S. American experimental tradition is full of people who are appropriating non-Western musics. I mean, you know, there's the sort of Cage and Colin McPhee and the sort of Balinese music lineage, right? Um, uh, there are, you know, the sort of, you know, broader histories of Japanese, Chinese, and, and Indonesian musics that float into the kind of exoticist tradition of Western art music that you find in Debussy, Ravel, you know, Britain, et cetera, right? Poulenc, I mean, it's all over the place. But Africa, traditional African musics were not as focused on by um, white experimental composers. And so Reich, I think Reich felt like he had found something that others had not really connected with. And of course it connected to something, you know, jazz and Black music that he was already interested in and influenced by. I mean, he'd been listening to that music since, at least to jazz, since he was a teenager. You know, as he famously said, it sort of changes his life when he hears, you know, like Charlie Parker, Kenny Clark, and all these people, right? Um, and so this kind of moment, um, I think, is he sort of found something that he thinks is going to be, is particularly meaningful to him and that he can really sort of propel and shape his work as he goes forward. And so as he's as part of that, I think he he takes decides to take drumming lessons with someone in New York. That's um, um, is it Alfred Ledshepko? I think so. Anyway, and as part of that, uh, he then decides he applies for a grant and got the grant. Went to uh, went to uh, Ghana to Accra and um, started working with I believe Gideon Alawarie. I yes, uh, is that yeah. the sound right? Yeah, and so. Um, and other people have worked with him too. I mean, you know, this is a university sort of setting. I mean, there's all sorts of context for uh, pedagogy and training. And as part of this, he's struggling with how to understand the music, right? And he's doing a lot of transcription. I mean, there's a piece of Reich that is very much bound up with transcribing. And, and you know, he's sort of like an influence by ethnomusicology at the time. And so that I would say is him kind of trying to struggle and figure out what he's you know going to do. Um, and I would say in terms of what influences, you know, the the music in drumming as opposed to earlier pieces, there are a few things. One is the idea really to focus on drums, which he had not done to that point. He says that it comes from hearing a performer in Juilliard who played sticks on bongos. And so this was a thing he remembered and he thought that that was really powerful. Um, and so he wanted to use it. Um, as part of his sort of debates with himself about what is and isn't okay to do, he felt like he had to really he was demarcating practices where he could find stuff in his own life. You know, he could go to the uh, drum stores and buy things as opposed to having to import specific, you know, instruments that would be difficult to find. And so he was very much not interested in that kind of like Parchian tradition of like specialized instruments, you know, things that would be like sort of basically obscure to kind of work with. I think he wanted to work with things that were relatively accessible in terms of like findable for Western you know, musicians. And so, um, so the sound of the drums is that. Um, there is, uh, I mean, the, the African 
rhythmic stuff, I think is a continuation of stuff he'd been doing. Um, so in that way, it sounds the most like when he says it was a confirmation, you know, of things he'd wanted to do. Yeah, uh, it's a confirmation because he had already been influenced by African music. And then when he went to study it, he was just learning more about African music. And, and at least some of the aspects weren't that different. And then I, I think the most, to me, the most important thing, and people have talked about this, um, certainly before I did, but I sort of drew a certain amount of attention to it, is um, just the heterogeneous sound ideal, which I think comes out of other pieces too. I mean, you hear it in, it's in C, for example, um, but um, but the way that the ensemble sort of comes together, and that you know, there's this transition, like a timbral transition from you know from the bongos to the marimbas to the glockenspiels to the whole, and of course all the voices and singing and whistling and all that that's going along with it, um, uh, flutes, piccolos, etc. Like you get this kind of heterogeneous ensemble at the end, and that is sort of Rice starting to, as he says, starting to think about like his own orchestra or something. Um, right. But it also is a, it's the heterogeneous sound ideal that doesn't sound like, uh, you know, Rice sort of working with this consistent timbral profile in order to get these psychoacoustic differences. Um, what, you know, I remember having a conversation with Greg Tate where he described Rice's music as, um, Africa as a science project, you know, <laughs> and um, which I thought was pretty apt. And I think in a weird way, the science project is much more with the phasing stuff. You've got this similar timbre thing and you're, you know, in doing the phasing and the shifts and you get these oral illusions and image, you know, things that you think you're hearing, you're not hearing. And Scherzinger emphasizes that that is something that's very much a part of African music too. And, and so, so that's where I think you know, he's sort of going and drumming starts with that, right? Because you've got the, the uniform instrumental sounds for the first three movements, but it's when they get combined that I think a very different kind of thing happens. And it it kicks off, I think, something different for him. But I think that's something that he think he picked up on, uh, not only kind of a confirmation, but a, maybe a new attention to it um, when he went to when he went to Ghana and was yeah. listening to his ensembles. Um, but, so... Uh, I mean, at the kind of meta level in terms of also what, what folks I've seen people talking about on, on Twitter and Facebook recently, do you see drumming as an act of cultural, cultural appropriation? Is, are these later works steeped in some of these African musical patterns, like Music for 18 Musicians, forms of cultural appropriation? Is that a framework that you think is productive to, to criticize or understand these works through? Sure. I mean, I think they are, but... I guess my feeling is that cultural appropriation is really extensive and widespread. And so um, I think if you start to kind of, and certainly the mode of art music, I think is one which in the, in the zeal for individuals demonstrating creativity and origina originality, um, and this is a sort of, you know, in part a kind of white, I think, practice, I think you'll find this everywhere in the traditions, you know? And so I guess I don't see Reich as special in this way. I think he's part of just a larger history that I think experimental music has to think about. What does it mean to do this? Um, I think, you know, scholars have tried to figure out ways to, that traditional musics can be somehow, you know, protected by copyright or that there are resources that go to musicians who are working with those materials. I think those sorts of things are really important and productive, like to find out, you know, individuals benefiting economically, building careers, um, no matter how much they did and felt that they did struggle in order to build those careers. I mean, you know, Reich, though he comes from an economically wealthy family, um, like many people at that time, struggled economically, right? I mean, that's part of the sort of history and, and mythos of that music and that world. And so I think a lot of these artists feel like they did this themselves, right? Like they, they built up their thing. And so to then say it's an act of appropriation feels um, unfair. But, um, but it's, I think it's both of those things, right? I mean, it's, and so I, I guess what I just, my main concern is I just want the conversation to have complexity and richness. I, I, I personally get really uncomfortable with the sort of the mode to and discourse of canceling. And I know that these things are oversimplified and you know, the, the right loves using cancel culture as a kind of boogeyman. And I think that's, it's also really important to resist that and be aware of that. Um, but you know, people on the left talk about cancel too, like, and, and think of it. 
and it's a it's a mode of power and it's a mode of changing discourse and changing society and you know it's you know i'm not saying people shouldn't do it i'm i'm pro boycotts in all sorts of contexts i mean the um uh, yeah, there. So it's it's more that trying to kind of think through these issues in a complex and rich way. Which I will say, some people say that the very complexity of doing so actually encourages inaction or encourages people not to do anything. And so that's something to think about. Um, but I guess you know, in the end, you know, human beings who are flawed, who are white males, who are in subject positions of power and what have you, relative power in a world, in worlds that have, in the grand scheme of things, not that much power, um, are, yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm, I'm sympathetic to, in a way that um, tries to see the nuances of their, of their, where they're located socially, you know. Um, I, I will say this too, and this is something that some people may feel is unfair, but I have felt that a lot of um, white individuals have wanted to really like come to me to validate um, what it means to engage with these issues because I'm not white. And I, and I just feel like I'm myself so compromised in these things. I'm, yes, I'm not white. And yes, you know, I look like you know, the way I look with my big beard and my hair and I've been called out as a terrorist and like all these, Jesus. right? I mean, I've had all, sure, the 9-11 was like absurd for me, right? But but on the other hand, um, I come from a, you know, not economically wealthy, but like an intellectually rich, a privileged South Asian Hindu Brahmin background. Um, you know, my, my family is like, you know, intellectually and, you know, politically connected, not politically, but yeah, somewhat politically. And, you know, so what, you know, it, it, it means something when you come to the United States as an immigrant and, you know, you're sort of semi shorn from those things. Um, but I don't know, I guess I just want people to think through their own privilege a little more and to, and to be humble about it. I mean, and then use that humility to have a certain amount of charity towards people. Um, which isn't to say, you know, like, should Reich be lionized in the way that he is? I mean, I've been kind of undergoing in various ways, an attempt to kind of ask people to think more critically about his Absolutely, music. Absolutely, right. Good, right. I mean, and the conservative drift story is one that's disturbing to me. Um, it's a part of a story that I absolutely needs to be talked about. Um, what I'd rather have is that I'd rather have it that he be open to having honest conversations about it. That's what I'd really like. What I'd really like, and you know, I haven't been in a position to do it. I felt fearful about it, haven't wanted to engage with him in that way. But if Reich is a political conservative and has these beliefs, I think they should be aired. I think mm. you should talk explicitly about them. It doesn't mean that people people may be mad, they may dislike him, it may lead to him, you know, having fewer performances, and that's probably why he hasn't done it in the same measure. I don't know. Um, I'm guessing, you know, he's He's a person who's lived a long life and, you know, he's not, he's a smart man. I'm sure he has, even though I don't think of him as a political thinker in that way. Um, but that said, I'm sure he has lots of things to say. I'm sure his, there are nuanced elements and it would be just better to have it out in the public and have people talk about it. Um, and then I think correspondingly for people to decide, you know, okay, you may have these views or beliefs. Um, is the music meaningful to me despite all of that? Um, Steve Reich is not a monster, you know, I don't think. Um, he's no Wagner and people continue to like play Richard Wagner's music because they find something meaningful in it. Um, including when, you know, Daniel Berenbaum brought it to Israel. I mean, right? I mean, so uh, a, a person's music can be better than them. You know, a person's cultural offering can move beyond the control that they, the creator thinks that they might have of it. And I think that's important to embrace too. So my plea is for like greater honesty, charity and understanding. Um, but then, I mean, which sounds totally like naive sounding, right? In certain ways, but um, as, but that, that is like in the mix along with the critical impulse and the anger and the frustrations that people feel, which, you know, are right. I mean, I never want to take away from that. Uh, you know, I, as I said, like, you know, George Floyd was murdered by police, you know, a couple miles from my house, um, you know, Minneapolis is like transformed in a, you know, profound way. And, uh, you know, and I've, you know, in my modest ways, I mean, not really major ways, but I'm part of it. You know, I'm part of that history and believe that policing needs to radically change that it's, you know, killing people and especially killing black people and indigenous people like in ways that are just 
deeply wrong and bound up with you know how property relations work in the United States. And so, so you know, so to to get people, you know, yeah. I don't want to deflate people's anger or feelings. Like, I mean, anger has motivated my own work, um, sure, in part, right? But but I just I want. I want a nuance and a richness around it. And then through that, we can, I don't know, try to figure out what's meaningful in terms of going forward. And yeah. if that means a few less Steve Reich performances or commissions, I mean, he's got enough money at this point, I'm sure. sure. Um, but I also think, you know, he's writing some good music these days. Um, I think the Reich Richter thing is like a real comeback for him. Uh, in my opinion, I was excited by the way that that sounded, I was surprised by it. Um, I want everyone to who's making creative music to, to make music and to do their yeah. thing. And, you know, we'll kind of sort it all out later. Sure. <laughs> That's probably the music scholar in me, right? I mean, yeah. Well, thank you so much. This was a really enlightening and, and productive conversation. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. I am deeply grateful to Sumanth Gopinath for that rich and provocative discussion. As always, you can visit soundexpertise.org for show notes that include links to Sumanth's writings on Reich. I am extraordinarily thankful to our producer, D. Edward Davis, for putting this episode together on a very tight timeline. That awesome theme music you hear is his, and you can check out more of his work over on SoundCloud at Warm Silence. I'm on Twitter at Seated Ovation if you have any questions or thoughts about the show. And if you're new to Sound Expertise, I encourage you to check out our previous episodes. And speaking of Twitter, I do have one big ask for this week. If you like our show, please post about us on social media. We would love your support on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, MySpace, Friendster, LiveJournal, and Zanga, especially Zanga, to help boost our audience. Thank you and see you next week for an interview with Timothy Taylor on capitalism and the value of music.